This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello, welcome to another Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on the morning of Thursday the 24th of March. This is the week that saw Russia's invasion of Ukraine continue, with the former slowly tightening its grip on the latter. Towns and cities continue to be bombarded, and many of them are flattened. There's other news going on, though, as well. The UK's Metropolitan Police have begun to interview key witnesses in the so-called Partygate affair at Number 10 Downing Street. And in the US, Madeleine Albright, the first female Secretary of State, has died. This week on uh, Philosophy Takes on the News, we'll be thinking about three topics. Our duties towards refugees, climate change, and we're going to have a drink in the metaverse. We'll also see what else we get onto, as always. Joining me to discuss this week's news, we have Julian Bagini, who's back with us again. Um, Julian's published a number of books and is a well-regarded speaker, as well as being academic director at the Royal Institute of Philosophy. Hi, Julian. Hi, Simon. Uh, and we've got two new guests with us this week. First of all, Fiona McPherson, who's Professor at the University of Glasgow and President of the British Philosophical Association. Hi, Fiona. Hi, Simon. Good morning. And we've also got Josh Vostenza, who's Senior Lecturer at the University of Sheffield. Hi, Josh. Hi, Simon, and hi, everyone. Uh, great. Thanks, uh, all three of you, for being with us. So let's start with our with our first topic. Uh, in the context of Ukraine and other conflicts, we've seen many, many people leave their homes in fear of their lives. They've been travelling vast distances at major personal cost and bearing huge risk. The issue of migration raises several issues, uh, some of them philosophical, um, some of them um, very deeply philosophical. Julian, you wanted to raise this topic with us this week and in particular think about what duties we have towards refugees in, the, in this situation. Yeah, well, actually, there's a, there's a broader issue uh, in moral philosophy, which this just is an example of. So maybe mm-hmm. if we are getting a bit too weighed down by these really awful things in Ukraine, we can't broaden it. So there is this idea and there's this concept, which uh, if I've had even one drink I can't pronounce properly, super erogatory, right? So the idea here is that there are things that we have duties to do, we're morally obliged to do. And there are other things that are morally good and morally praiseworthy. We're not obliged to do them, and these are the supererogatory things. So, for example, I may have an obligation to save, to risk my own life to save my own child, for example, but I don't have an obligation, for example, to fly to the other side of the world to try and save the life of a stranger. Some people do that, and we think that's highly uh, praiseworthy, it's morally good, but we don't think anyone's obliged to do those kind of things. Now, with refugees currently sort of flowing out of Ukraine, I think a lot of us are thinking about what our responsibilities are towards them. And I think most of us, I really hope that most of us agree that certainly as a society, we have an obligation to take them on. But in, in the UK, where, where we all are at the moment, um, there's also this call, lots of people are offering up their homes to refugees mm-hmm. and the government is trying to coordinate this. And I think this is wonderful and this is fantastic. And I find myself wondering, am I, am I uh, morally obliged to do this? Or is this kind of a supererogatory act? And this sort of takes me back to these thoughts of the supererogatory. And I've got some other ones as well. But one thing here is whether or not it kind of makes it seem too much as though there's this neat distinction between our duties uh-huh. 
and what is optional. I think a lot of the time, if general kind of rule of thumb, methodological rule of thumb for me is wherever you see kind of a binary, ask yourself if it makes more sense to think of it as a kind of a spectrum. And it mm-hmm. seems to me a bit like this, you know, there are things that we have at one end of the spectrum, there are these things we're absolutely morally obliged to do. The other end of the spectrum are things which are completely optional. But it seems that between that, all sorts of in-betweeny things where we have sort of stronger and weaker obligations and where, you know, our justifications for opting out are, are weaker or stronger. And I think that with this refugee situation, it seems to be a, a bit like that and very, very sort of fluid, you know. So I don't think I'm – I think if I was to offer my home to a refugee, I don't think that's something that I'm absolutely obliged to do 100%. But nor do I think it's something which is like completely kind of optional. I think that all of us are facing quite difficult decisions and about how much we ought to take this duty seriously, how much of it should fall upon us. And I don't think the answer is it does or it doesn't. <laughs> okay, thanks, Julian. That was a really good uh, explanation. Fiona, Josh, have you got any thoughts about this? I guess one question that's closely related to this is a question of the demandingness of morality. Mm-hmm. So... The question of supererogation. So some people think that there aren't supererogatory acts because they think that if something is a morally good thing, then it just is uh, required of us to do it. And you know, those people just point to the fact that morality is demanding and that it's really hard to be a good person and a person that does the morally good stuff. And other people say, well, Surely not. Surely there's, you know, like a minimum level that we're all required to do. And then, well, of course, you know, you're a great person if you step beyond that, but surely I can't be required to do those things. And I think that the worry um, from the people who think that um, morality is demanding is that it would require such a huge shift in all of our lifestyles and how we lived our lives and what we did to conform with that. And people are so put off by that that they think, oh, okay, morality can't be that demanding. This stuff is super irrigatory and it's just very hard to know what to do in the, in the face of that. It's very hard to know what to do. So for what it's worth, I think I'm in the camp that Fiona has just described. I think we have mm-hmm. lots and lots of duties that we just fail to fulfill. And uh, sometimes, you know, every once in a while, people in my department think I'm a bit extremist when when really wild thought experiments come up of in what situations we just have a duty not to do something. In fact, there was a talk not too long ago. Well, I say that was probably before the pandemic, but uh, it feels like not that long ago, uh, where an example was given. We imagine a child picking up a gun and, you know, you're you're the adult in the room and that, that child is potentially going to harm uh, him or herself or indeed someone else in the room. Do you have an obligation to risk the fact that you're very likely to get killed by this child to minimally stop them from harming someone else? A lot of people's intuition is probably yes. And, and do you have a duty to then also intervene to stop that child from harming themselves if there's no one else in the room? I also think yes. And, and a lot of people in, my, in that space thought that was maybe too demanding that you should die to be able to save this child from harming themselves. And I thought it's obvious because in that case, the child doesn't have the means to know otherwise, to know better. And uh, so I think that's a case, you know, just one thought experiment where sometimes philosophy can be helpful in revealing uh, an intuition, at least in oneself. And I think in the case of refugees, it's, it's much the same. We do have obligations to help people who are fleeing war and persecution. Uh, We have them as a collective uh, through the societies and the states that we participate in, but I think we also have them individually. I think we we likely uh, can understand that we're more more tempted to fail to fulfill some duties than others, and some of that has to do with the cost of fulfilling that duty. 
And I suspect that's the, the intuition with saying it's over-demanding. Is that right, Julian? Yeah. <laughs> Don't ask me if that's right. I'm not the person to judge on that. But the thing about them being demanding, I mean, I do, I do, I do kind of see this. I think that there's a familiar thing that is taught to undergraduates and everything about, you know, the, the Kantian principle that ought implies can. So the idea here is that you can't say that you're morally required to do something unless you are able to do it. And that kind of places a, a limitation on how demanding morality can be. But I mean, I was quite taken by something that Simon Critchley sort of said many moons ago now, which was he, you know, putting it slightly rhetorically, I think, he says it's the opposite, ought implies cannot. And in a sense, there's something that perhaps, you know, some religious traditions have right, is that they start from the idea that actually, you know, it's good that morality demands more of us than we can give. It keeps us on our toes, you know, having that. It's like in the same way that you often hear, you know, artists or sports people talk about how, you know, they aim for perfection. They can never get perfection. But if you don't aim for perfection, you won't achieve your best. In the same way, to have a moral demand, which is in a way impossible, keeps our sights high. And that's really important. So I can see the value of that. But I guess I probably I'm not in your camp of thinking that <laughs> it's literally that, that demanding. And um. Uh, let, let me float something that's been sort of in the back of my mind for a hell of a long time now. And, you know, maybe someone in moral philosophy has talked about this, but I think there must be something that we ought to call something like moral preferences. And I think moral preferences can come in two kinds. But let's take the first kind first of all. You know, the utilitarian sort of way of thinking, in other words, do whatever produces the greatest good. The, one of the problems with that is it seems there's an infinite list of things that we could do. To produce good, I could donate my kidney. But if I'm donating my kidney, then while I'm in the in hospital having the operation, I can't therefore go and uh, you know feed people in the other side of the world. And if I give a bone marrow transport, I can't give a kidney. You know what I mean? So there's an infinite number of things that we could do. So um, it can't be the case that uh, we're obliged to do all of them. But you know, perhaps in some general sense, we're obliged to do as much as we can. And in that sense, it seems to open up this idea that what exactly we choose to do could actually just be a matter of preference, right? Whether I decide that my my act of, uh, whether I'm going to give a kidney or I'm going to fly across the world to help people, it's no more than a preference. There's no algorithm to tell me which of those I, I should most do. I'm sure the utilitarians wouldn't agree with that because they'd probably say that there must be some calculation which will tell me which one has the greatest benefits and I should do that one. But I'm not sure how far down the road we can go with that. It's interesting thinking about super erogatory actions in light of utilitarianism because often super erogatory actions are such that we think that there's a cost to the person doing them, right? So if I'm thinking of potentially taking a refugee into my house, we think there's a cost of doing that. Like, you know, maybe it's annoying having someone in my house. Maybe I have to put on my heating more to accommodate them and so on. Now, that's a, Those are trivial examples I've given you, obviously. but in sort of very demanding super uh, cases or cases where, you know, perhaps you give up your life to save someone else's life. There is a cost to you. And if you you are a utilitarian and you're weighing costs, you might think that all over a supererogatory action on the part of someone might lead to negative utility because while you're doing something good on behalf of someone else, you might be doing something so bad on behalf of you that that actually makes things worse. So if we're just thinking within a utilitarian framework, uh, extra questions arise about whether supererogatory actions are actually the best ones to do, all things considered. 
just guys, some thoughts from me. So I think, um, yeah, there'll be some utilitarians and consequences. I mean, they, they just won't, in a way, have have any conceptual space for the idea of supererogatory acts because they'll do all those calculations and they'll say, this is what one should do. And you can't... Um, so supererogatory actions are often thought of as going above and beyond what morality demands. And so for utilitarians, you just decide what morality demands and that's it. And there's no conceptual space for the supererogatory. It's just whatever the action action is. And I, I th- I'm, t- I'm caught by what um, Julian was, was saying, though, about um, the, the various preferences and the way in which you might decide to, to help people I mean, this, in this situation. I mean, I suppose what comes to mind most readily is the big different kind of intellectual moral tradition that we've all working with uh, over the last few centuries, that the deontological tradition and thinking about Kant um, and thinking about imperfect duties, right? So, you know, you need to help people, but how exactly you do that is going to be up to you and it's going to be about um, having... You know, there'll be various principles, perhaps, but really, it's a lot of it's about moral sense and moral moral wisdom. The way you posed it, first of all, Julian, the the question of where you're always suspicious of there being a kind of clear cutoff between something being permissible or impermissible and obligatory and not obligatory and and all of that, and, and working your way around that. I was trying to think think through that. I mean, in the context of you know refugees coming in into my house, and of course, the sort of examples that Fiona was giving, it's going to be a easier for some people in this country to welcome refugees into their house or to do things than it is for, for other people. And in fact, that's the kind of considerations that people will be thinking about who are at least attracted towards this idea of, of being welcoming. You know, what, what can, what can I do? Perhaps I can't, I haven't got a spare room, but across a group of neighbors, some people have a spare room. And so I'll offer to, you know, help uh, with refugees if they're going to be in, in a neighbor's house, but I'll help them with all the forms that they'll have to fill in that, I'm sure the Home Office will give them at some point. You know that sort of that sort of thing. So there's going to be all sorts of ways in which we can help and and feel obliged, but but how we're obliged and whether that that's a kind of strong or weak obligation, I think, is something that one can work one's way through and around. So I'm quite tempted by the idea, particularly in this sort of situation, when you think through the details, that there aren't these strong cutoff points. But I know if, I know if Helen Frey were back on the on the episode, she'd be. Jumping up and down with me at this point. Sorry, go on, back, go back to you, Fiona. I think a lot of the time when philosophers think about, you know, morality, we're asking this question, you know, what ought I to do? And instantly questions arise about, you know, what's the best thing to do? We've seen people who've collected supplies locally, put them in a truck and driven them to the border of Ukraine. And actually people there are saying, please don't do that. You know, actually, just could you just donate some money? That would be best. But this question of, you know, what, Oh, I to do? Is that the primary or the first question we should be asking? A lot of people think mm-hmm. that actually the main question is what ought we to be doing as a society? Yeah. And as soon as you make that the primary question, then we could have a duty as a society to take care of refugees. And then mm-hmm. there's a question of, well, what's the best way to do that? And maybe it's you know offering individuals who are willing £350 a month to take people in. But maybe maybe actually that's not the best thing to do. Maybe it's actually that we all donate some money or we're all taxed appropriately so that we're in a position to perhaps build housing very quickly so that people can get homes. Um, as soon as you make that switch into thinking, you know, what ought we to do, then I think you mm-hmm. unpick a little bit of this question of, 
irrigatory acts because a tension which arises, which seems to be, well, I don't have to take someone into my house, but there does seem to be this duty to look after people kind of dissolves a little bit because we can say we at the collective level need to arrange ourselves in a certain way to make sure that this happens. And that's where our duties primarily lie. I think that's that's a really um, strong point, actually, Fiona. And I think that I think there are many ways in which yeah, there are certain sort of deep cultural assumptions which you don't really notice. And I think the sort of the individualism, we all talk about the individualism of Western culture, but I think we don't often mm. notice how this manifests itself. And I think in, in this way, in which we tend to think about moral choices, primarily about I, um, th- there's a good reason for that in the sense that, you know, you can only start with yourself. You, you know, you, in a sense, you don't have control about what other people do. In terms of thinking about what the priorities are, it's, it's almost it's difficult to think of an issue except one which involves friends and family where the we isn't much more important. So, for example, if we think about, I mean, I'm very concerned about issues around um, you know, being conscientious about my personal purchases when it comes to animal welfare and the environment. You know, I think it's perfectly reasonable that everyone should be conscientious in that way. But at the same time, it's really bloody obvious that if we're going to solve these problems, well-intentioned people living in sort of middle-class areas of Bristol with their tote bags and their organic bacon isn't going to make a difference. You know, all the while the regulatory framework is basically encouraging people to engage in destructive forms of agriculture or allowing them to sort of bring up animals in in cruel ways. This is this is almost tokenistic. So I think yeah, it's that kind of so. And there's this guy called John Alexander who's talked about this. Um, idea of the citizenship you know we we we, we, the consumer mentality means that even at the level of morality we're acting like we're consumers like the primary thing is how do i make my ethical choices as an individual like i'm consuming my options whereas actually most solutions have to be solved at the citizen level and it's a collective problem i think so i think that is something that we often don't even notice is happening i just want to build on this because it's very exciting so i I think in a way you, you've, you've brought us to a very good point to say maybe framing it as duties is not all that helpful. Now, I know a mm-hmm. lot of people talk and think in terms of duties in their moral lives, so it's answering something psychologically salient for people. But in fact, I think, especially when we're thinking of situations of crises, we're better off thinking in terms of virtues. And one of the reasons for thinking about that is that on the Aristotelian model of virtues, we have an account which tells us that depending on the concrete circumstances that make it possible for us to act in certain ways, we are basically required to do more or less. And so we should be orientated towards doing the good, which largely has to do with fostering in ourselves, but also in the communities that we belong to, the right kinds of habits. Because actually, a lot of our problems are not just uh, collective as opposed to individual, they're also long-term as opposed to short-term, and they're also about the kinds of dispositions uh, that we have towards acting in specific contexts, rather than just sort of individual moments of doing things for a particular sake. So uh, interestingly, I think right now, with the question of welcoming Ukrainian refugees or not, um, we can we can look at that as a yes or no, and so that invites the duty perspective. But if we adopt a, a virtue and vice perspective, we might wonder whether we're being vicious by thinking that actually somehow, some way in this context, we think we have a greater duty to accept in our own homes Ukrainian refugees rather than Syrian or Yemeni refugees mm-hmm. or indeed Afghani refugees or indeed uh, refugees from Sudan or Somalia uh, or Uh, from spending the equivalent amount of money as we would, uh, sending money uh, to places where there's very severe droughts and people are starving. Uh, You know, Mm. this is is one of the things that we can get lost in with uh, duty talk if we we really think that it's just a matter of getting the right list of duties and fulfilling them, is that we can forget that 
the moment we ask, do I have a duty? We often don't ask, you know, do I have a, an equal duty in all these other contexts that I'm not talking about right now? And so mm-hmm. virtue and vice talk helps us have the big picture in mind, helps us think about the fact that we are trying to attend to difficult moral situations to the best of our ability. And just to add one point, there is an interesting concept uh, that Aristotle introduces, which is megalopsychia, whereby in virtue of benefiting greatly from, the, from, from society, from basically being in, a, in an advantage position, uh, there is a group of people who have an even greater burden uh, to basically be virtuous, and this will cost them. So actually, uh, Aristotle doesn't seem to think that the the, uh, the can be happy, uh, can be a happy person. He thinks that th- these people do not become uh, eudaimon when they act virtuously. Uh, but that's partially because they have so much privilege to start out with that they have to do things that are of great benefit to the communities to which they belong. And that's just a, a big burden, but they have to do it anyway. And I think that if we look on the global scale, all of us who are uh, above a certain threshold of income in the United Kingdom, uh, in advanced democracies, have that kind of uh, a burden. We are in in, in our own global context, uh, the megalopsychoi, we have uh, this responsibility to try to be uh, virtuous beyond just basic uh, conceptions of virtue. And so uh, it has to cost us. That's the, that's the view we should look at it. And we shouldn't expect to be happy. In one sense, I, I'm tempted just to end the segment there on that bombshell, Josh. But, Sorry, you know, I'm I, laughing I, I, just because it seems, you know, extreme. But I think yeah, the, 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 yeah, the, the, that's right. The audience won't see everyone laughing as I say <laughs> that. We, 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 we do hope, though, that all of you sitting at home are happy uh, and Josh hasn't put a big downer on you at all, um, particularly <laughs> well, if you're in Bristol but... and, and got your, your tote bag and your organic bacon. <laughs> Yeah, but I'll tell you what, though, I think I think at a risk of going off on a huge tangent, you know, I think that's a, a serious point. Um, mm-hmm. Happiness is a good thing, all other things being equal. Right. And, and but but more importantly, misery is a bad thing. You know, so it would be more interested in eradication of misery than the promotion of happiness. And also, I just think, you know, happiness is 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 a complicated thing. And I think there is a sense in which there's something inappropriate about just being entirely happy. You know, they, 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 the world's a, a, a dreadful place in lots of ways, always kind of suffering. So I kind of think, um, I don't think anyone should feel bad about being happy and being happy is good. But I, I think that kind of an adult happiness is always got a bit of the bitter in it as well, isn't it? It's that mm-hmm. bittersweet feeling. And I find that at the moment, you know, with what's going on in Ukraine, and Josh may think that, you know, it, it, I should feel this when things go on more remotely as well. But I think psychologically, things do affect you more when they're close. So that's just a, a human fact. And we're having a, a, a finally a beautiful spring here at the moment in the south of England. And if I'm sitting outside having a coffee, be- this beautiful spring sunshine, it's beautiful. But I, I feel at the same time a kind of a sadness uh, about what's happening in the world. And it's appropriate that I, I'm not just straightforwardly happy, right? It would be almost like, obscene if i was just sitting there obliviously happy not being bothered at all by what's going on in the world so yeah i think i agree happiness is overrated i think really what josh has done has brought us back to the idea of the demandingness of morality it's not just Mm -hmm. to ukrainian refugees right here and right now there are refugees all across the world there are homeless people on our doorstep um, and we've seen that when COVID strikes and we decide that actually as a society, it would be very good for us to look after those people, we can do it. And then mm-hmm. post-COVID, all that thinking just sort of falls away, even though during the crisis we were saying, oh, this is the way forward. We must do this. We must keep this up. 
but yeah, I mean, this problem of the demandingness of morality is terrible because it means you shouldn't be sitting out there in the spring sunshine enjoying your coffee, but you should be, you know, donating your coffee money to some good cause and you should be doing without your coffee. And it, it would require, su- if we took that problem seriously, it would require such a huge shift in our lives, I think. So I suppose that what one one last thought then, and I mean that, that's absolutely right, Fiona. Josh, Josh has brought us back there, and just thinking about the people that that Josh has described, and that that mental attitude that that, that might come with with the demandingness and the way that Julian was just talking. You know, how how could one survive in that world and be kind of mentally stable in the very demanding world? Because we one would constantly be thinking, "I can't have a coffee. I must donate." I mean, it would be. I mean. It would be hugely demanding, and perhaps you'd, you'd end up be as a mental and emotional wreck, wouldn't you? And and that 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 must tell something against the authority. Oh, jo- Josh, Josh thinks that I've just made, uh, I'm just wrong on that. Go on. No, I didn't. Th- I didn't say we could fulfil this. Oh right, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I think um, it's, it's maybe going to be dissatisfactory for a lot of people, but I think it's really important actually that we foster the ability uh, to experience in ourselves all at once a profound sense of dissatisfaction with our own moral character and a commitment to uh, improving it uh, and to improve it improving it to the best of our abilities but precisely one of the things that that the virtue framework provides is an attention to the fact that this is for the long term uh, you know we we are here to build habits we're here to build a certain way of life and look for a flourishing uh uh, not just of the self, but of the community in which we we participate, and that just cannot be um, completely broken down to the question: of Should you feel guilty when you're having a coffee or not? I, I understand the feeling, I understand the question, mm-hmm. but I think to a large extent the question is: Do you live overall a life uh, of virtue? And I know that can sound pious in some way. I'm, for what it's worth, I'm not a person of faith. I actually don't belong to any traditions, but I think that's a question we don't ask enough. Uh, am I living a life of virtue? And I think also our institutions, for what it's worth, do not behave virtuously either. And, and I say this, you know, from uh, the very bottom all the way to the top, partially because we don't ask that question in public. We're willing to ask the question whether rules were broken. And even then, it seems as though we have a limited attention span for that. Uh, but we have a really hard time asking uh, what are the kinds of habits and behaviors that we would like to see supported, enabled, uh, made easier to do. Uh, that are uh, within reach, and that actually, if we think about it hard enough, things that seem out of reach now could be within reach in a decade and in two decades if we do the hard work of laying the foundation for that. And that's a completely different way of thinking about what's uh, right to do. What's right to do is to build the good, and that takes time. I think probably a lot of us have personally experienced thinking through these ideas. I mean, we as philosophers, being typically reflective creatures, a lot of us have asked is it all right to spend one's life studying and thinking philosophically, studying philosophy and thinking philosophically? You know, should I? I think that every day, Fiona. Well, there you go. It shows your virtue, Simon. So, you know, there's a sense of, you know, surely I should be out, you know, um, helping people and practically making the world a better place. And just to be sitting, pondering, you know, can sometimes seem less than ideal. But at the same time, I think a lot of us have come to the conclusion that actually to have a flourishing society, you need people to be thinking really deeply and seriously about these issues. And hopefully some of our deep thinking will push society in the right way, at least on some occasions, to do the right thing and think through things properly. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with so much of this, but I do want to stick up for enjoying your coffee in the sun. 
right? <laughs> I mean, not least because actually my coffee in the sun is being grown by farmers happy to have a better livelihood than they would if they were just churning out for the global commodity markets, right? So, you know, you do these things properly, it's right. But also, you know, what is the purpose of all this altruism and helping for people? What do we want for uh, Ukraine? What do we want for the people of Ukraine or the people from, you know, Somalia, wherever it is? What we want is for them to be able to do the equivalent of sit and have a coffee in the sun, right? I mean, if we was to erase all these problems, it would be to enable people to have these simple um, pleasures. So I think there's something a bit kind of self-defeating in kind of like saying that it's immoral to, to do precisely those things that are the goal of altruistic action to enable others to do. The, 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 the problem becomes when it's out of kilter, when you're, when, you're, when you're doing it in a selfish way, a harmful way, without consideration for others. I worry it, that it seems easy from the position that one is in oneself to think that thought. But as soon as you think, so if you think of some billionaire who has super yachts and houses all over the world, you know, you can imagine them saying much the same thing. Well, of course, the goal is for everyone to have a super yacht and <laughs> houses. And of course, I'm just living a good life. And of course, I'd love everyone else to come and join me. That'd be great. Um so, you know, I, th I take it that that's not right, that that's the wrong thing to do. And I take it that there has to be a balance. And nobody's, I think, going to be denying that, you know, one nice coffee in the sun is, is a bad thing. But, you know, the question is, you know, is that question of balance, isn't it? It's where, you know, how should you act in the face of terrible suffering in the world, but also you're wanting a good life for yourself? Mm. No, fair enough. And Josh made the point that we are actually, all of us, in the position of being the global, whatever it is, possibly even 1%. I don't know. I mean, it, this is this is a shocking thing. People think that 1% is the, the, the people in the super yachts, but on a global scale, I think half the UK population is in the 1% or something alarming like that. Uh, please, uh, listeners, please fact check that for yourselves. Don't believe me. Yeah. <laughs> just, to, just to add on that, because, I mean, uh, Fiona said it better than I could, but... I think it's, it's worth saying, when you take this perspective, how we build the good, one of the things maybe that, to, that we would worry about a bit less is guilt, because guilt is only useful uh, if it's put to building the good. Now, if that guilt spurs you into action, then it's useful guilt. We should cultivate that. But if that guilt just makes you beat yourself up and doesn't change at all the kinds of things that you do, then it really is pointless. It's just harming you. And so I think one of the things is to cultivate the right kinds of emotions that lead to taking practical action to improve situations. So if that guilt somehow, some way, uh, when you're having a coffee and you feel bad about it, spurs you to do something good that on the whole becomes sustainable and improves uh, the life of your community and in fact of the world, that's fantastic, right? Uh, but if it turns out that it's just a way to self-abase and, and tell yourself, oh my God, I could be doing so much more, but I'm not doing it, and it doesn't lead to action, then, you know, really... And it's not doing much uh, of moral value. So let go of it. Listen, that's a really nice note to end things on, uh, Josh. Probably better than the note from about 10 <laughs> minutes ago. <laughs> and that was really interesting, all of you. And uh, perhaps we'll just uh, take a break, have our coffees in the sun, and then we'll rejoin our listeners, billionaires and otherwise, um, to talk about the metaverse. <laughs> And welcome back. This week, the brewer Heineken launched a brand new beer. The catch was that this was a virtual beer brewed in the metaverse in a virtual brewery in Decentraland owned by Heineken. 
the beer was described as being brewed, quote, with binary coded hops grown by non-player character farmers. It was, in fact, a mock launch with Heineken poking fun at itself and the metaverse concept, although real journalists were invited to the launch and some did confess to be confused by the surreal event. If you're interested in this, it happened about four or five days ago. There's a really nice write-up on the BBC News website. Um, Fiona, you found this gem of a story for us. Do you want to explain what the metaverse is and why this story is so interesting? Yes. So um, this story combines two of my passions, virtual reality and beer. Uh, so it's got to got to be a good story from the from the off. So what is the metaverse? Well, uh, I think one nice place to start is to think about just the meaning of the word meta. Meta is a Greek word. It's translated variously as something like beyond or after or alongside. And it has uh, very self-referential connotations. So some people say things like, well, look, uh, if you talk about meta something, then, you know, meta X, then there's a formula. What you're talking about is X about X. So if you're talking about metadata, you're talking about data about data. If you're talking metacognition, you're talking thinking about thinking. If you're talking metaphilosophy, you're talking philosophy about philosophy. Of course, there's a, a lovely central example in philosophy where that doesn't hold. So uh, metaphysics is obviously a central field in philosophy, but that doesn't mean physics about physics. Rather, the metaphysics were just the name given to the books that came after the first set of books, which were called the physics that Aristotle wrote. So meta metaphysics uh, doesn't really fall in this mode, but sort of refers to the, the sense of after coming after the physics. But when we think in that sort of self-referential way and sort of thinking about thinking or Xing about X, um, the metaverse you might think is the world of worlds, the world of virtual worlds, the world of 3D immersive worlds. If you think of what the internet is, the internet is the collection of, of websites um, of web pages that are all joined together. The metaverse is the collection of different 3D immersive worlds that all have connections to each other. Great. So when reading this story and hearing about it, which you, which you sent to the, to the other three of us, what did you think about, you know, having a virtual beer in a, in a, in a metaverse? I mean, did you think that was just crazy or do you think there was some interesting point to it? Well, I think it relates to two very interesting questions. So one is, should we think of virtual 3D immersive worlds as somehow involving genuine reality? And um, David Chalmers' recent book that has been published uh, called Reality Plus that is receiving a lot of attention, he's really trying to um, push the idea that uh, virtual reality is genuine reality. And he has quite a complex story to be told about how that is. But but what something like virtual beer seems to point out is, no, it's not. Uh, <laughs> a virtual beer is not beer. And the Heineken people, I can imagine the uh, marketing executive saying, right, there's this metaverse. How can we get our beer into the metaverse? And then realizing, ah, the metaverse isn't like genuine reality. There's not really a way of getting our beer in there. So let's just have a laugh about this. And, and um, you know, some of their lines were very, very clever. You know, they said things like, there are no hidden ingredients, nor any ingredients. There are no calories, nor any ingredients, nor any beer. Uh, so I thought I thought that they, they did it quite well. Maybe it didn't catch on with people because... 
maybe people aren't quite au fait enough yet with um, mm-hmm. virtual reality to to quite get the joke in their face. But I th- it made me laugh. Um, but what what it does raise too is this question of what is virtual reality when we think beyond mm-hmm. the visual. So of course. When you wear a headset, a virtual reality headset, there are two screens, one presented to each eye, but you don't seem to see those screens. You seem to see sort of a 3D immersive world in front of you. But of course, you know, we don't just have vision in virtual reality. And we know that the the more immersive an environment is, the more it involves all of our senses. So currently, virtual reality typically involves hearing. And then you've got to think, well, what is virtual reality in the hearing world and how long has it been around for? So I'm quite tempted by the idea that musical recordings, for example, and recordings of voices Uh and podcasts that are played Uh after the fact are a form of virtual reality because Uh uh, perhaps the audience right now here is listening to my voice, but of course I'm not in there in the room speaking to them. So they're virtually hearing my voice we're creating an auditory world for them as if they were in the room listening to me speak but they're not Uh, so maybe uh sort of since sound recording maybe we've had virtual reality in in hearing and of course we don't in in standard virtual reality kit that you can buy off the shelf at the moment we standardly don't create pressure sensations on the body but we know that there are suits that are being developed that can cause Mm -hmm. people to feel on their body but what about taste and what about smell? What would virtual reality be in those worlds? And again, you might be tempted to think, well, that's already here. It's just something commonplace and we don't think of as virtual. So, for example, perfume. Is perfume that gives you the smell of flowers, is that virtual reality for smell? Because, oh, it smells like there are flowers in the air. But, of course, there isn't really the smell of flowers in the air. There's just perfume. And perhaps... um chemical flavorings of you know banana or something maybe they're virtual reality in the taste world and of course it seems very unlikely that it seems quite difficult to provide to consumers on a mass scale uh, the right sorts of smells and tastes at the right point in the world because it's just physically quite difficult to do so will we ever get to a point where we can do that with that just involve zapping people's brains but even then you you wouldn't be getting food you wouldn't be getting nutritional value from someone zapping your brain and making it taste like there's banana in your mouth so does it sort of speak to the thought that there is really a gap between the virtual world and the real world ah great and you wouldn't get a taste of beer either that was fascinating thanks thanks fiona uh julian josh you got any thoughts on on this yeah i mean it's interesting i mean i i read the charmers book and I think one thing that I find interesting about this is that, you know, Chalmers in typical philosopher's style is kind of saying, well, let's forget about what is actually the case. What if? And what if you could have this entirely, completely immersive world, which was virtual, in which every experience were just like that in the physical world, et cetera, et cetera. Would that be real? And he kind of argues it is for many reasons, but one of which is, look, it doesn't actually matter what the fundamental substrate of the world is. We had no idea for millennia that the fundamental basis of the physical universe was the stuff described in quantum physics, but we experienced it as real. In a virtual world, the substrate would just be bits of information. But again, same thing. Now, now that's kind of interesting in its own right, but I think in a way, what's more interesting and more pressing 
it's the kind of things Fiona's talking about. At the moment, we are already engaged in interacting in environments which are not entirely you know, organic or natural. We have virtual elements and they're shaping us. And in a way, I'm more interested in what's that doing for us now and what does it mean now? And as someone mm-hmm. who is now officially kind of an old fuddy-duddy, you know, you know not down to the kids, I, I find some of this stuff quite baffling. So I read a survey recently, a quite respected survey, in which among sort of um, probably Gen Zers or whatever the term is, or younger people who are like digital natives, that more of them reported feeling their genuine, authentic selves in online interactions than in what we would call in real life. So for people who've grown up in the environment, they themselves feel that in a sense they are more really them interacting online than in real life. Now, I, I have the reaction of someone who's older is like, oh my God, this is awful, shocking, etc. But really, I'm not. Pro- I'm probably just not really understanding it very well. Maybe it is bad. And maybe, maybe the, it's dystopian. Maybe it's just a change that's not going on. And in a way, I kind of want to, to read, rather than reading a lot about what would happen if we reached this stage of absolute virtual immersion, which still seems to me very, very, very far off and maybe even impossible, I'm more interested in how these sort of like layers of, of virtuality in our world at the moment are already changing us. And in particular, it's becoming, because in part, it's really important to understanding different generations, I think. I think the younger, younger people now are kind of like almost aliens, which is a typical experience of getting older. Older people have always thought that, even in ancient Greece. <laughs> I think that virtual reality, as it is at present, does raise all sorts of ethical interesting ethical questions because for a long time people have thought about well you know you're really being the possibility for being manipulated in that in that virtual world by the programmers by the designers how much control do you have in that world how much are you being monitored those those are all questions that arise and have come up in lots of films and television series like things like uh, upload uh, the tv program it's all about the interaction of the real world and the programmers on the virtual world and i also think that it's very important to think about the knowledge people have in the virtual world. So something that Chalmers doesn't talk about too much is whether the value of what you do in a world depends on whether you're interacting with a real person or not. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me like I could go on into a virtual world, come to know someone and fall in love and really be falling in love and that'd be a very valuable activity. But for me, that would only really seem like that if it was a real person I was interacting with if it wasn't a real person but I didn't know it I would I would feel severely cheated and I wouldn't really think that um I was being loved back by someone it would just it would just all be fake and so whether you're interacting with real people in these worlds or just seemingly or just interacting with seeming people seems to me a very very important distinction that um not enough weight is is placed upon this is really interesting stuff but unfortunately I haven't yet read Chalmers book so I don't have much to contribute to the the rich conversation that's going on now about exactly how we should view virtuality but when I when I read this story that you shared Fiona I did think about other social phenomena so from non-fungible tokens and cryptocurrencies as these kinds of entities that have taken on a form in which there's uh, monetary value but they they have no real world substance to them. They're they're entirely virtual entities, and yet they have real world consequences. Particularly with crypto, 
cryptocurrencies, we know that crypto mining has a huge climate mm. impact. I don't want to preempt the next storyline here, but uh, they have a huge uh, uh, carbon cost. And NFTs, uh, I, I'm led to believe, not, not quite as big, also have a significant carbon footprint. And that there's this kind of rush to make money out of these things that have no physical substance to them is, is kind of wild to me. But it really worries me, and I'll, I'll put it this way, because it, it makes Marx look really right about commodity <laughs> fetishism. Uh, in so far as there's, he, it really looks like the prediction he made about any commodity under capitalism being in some way only defined by its exchange value, and, and oh, in no real sense actually defined by its use value for for mm-hmm. a human community, is taken to its extreme. Because in the case of NFTs and crypto. You know, they don't exist as anything other than something that's for exchange. That's entirely their entity. They're only entities for exchange. And so I did wonder, I mean, it was quite funny to read the Heineken people talk about what they were doing because they knew that there was no sense in which the beer could take on that kind of meaning. But let's see, maybe they'll be launching some NFTs of some particular Heineken beers from a certain era because they'll realize there's a market there. I don't know. That's just that. Those are my, my thoughts on this topic. Do you really think there's a big difference between cryptocurrencies and standard money? I mean, we've got away from, you know, your your one pound note says something like, we still have one pound notes in Scotland, I think, um, says, you know, promise to pay the bearer one pound, you know, but if you turn up in the bank, you say, right, here's my pound note, give me my one pound, you know, you're not... You're not given anything. You're you're increasingly our money is just you know numbers on your online app that you can exchange for food and 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 other items. Um, it doesn't seem to me there's a huge difference anymore between cryptocurrencies and real currencies. I mean, I'm not an economist. So I think there's I, well, I suppose I shouldn't say anything because I'm not an economist. I think you're right. I think there's still some that, that you would hope there was some difference, right? And this is what I think all the difference is. So I think you're right that there's been this process of what's sometimes called financialization, in which sort of like the, the money markets have kind of detached themselves from the real economy. But I think there's still a sense in which it's supposed to be grounded in something kind of real. So, you know, the value of a, a national currency depends upon the strength of the economy in that country and the strength of the economy of that country is 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 measured by things which you know there may be services as well as goods but they're all real things kind of happening and what i don't understand about crypto and i would just accept i don't understand this there's possibly an answer to this is that what on earth is fundamentally grounding the value of these things? And it seems like, you know, as Josh was saying, it is only about exchange value. That what makes you know one of these things worth something? It it's exchange all the way down, if you like. Whereas with real money, I think there is supposed to be. If you go down far enough, there's meant to be sort of real services and things of value underpinning it. Maybe I'm just not understanding it, but. Yeah, can I, can I just uh, c- come in there? Because actually I was thinking we were going on two tracks and now I can see that actually we're, we're bringing them back. So in the discussion so far, we've gone on to NFTs and crypto, which I sort of think I understand, though probably um, I'm wrong about that. And you're, and you're right, you know, all three of you, there's, there's a massive debate at the moment and has been for a while. I mean, theoretical debate, but certainly about crypto and about uh, whether it's a commodity or a, or a type of currency and and there's and there's quite technical debates about that and then but Fiona Fio was, was talking a lot also about you know falling in love with or seeming to fall in love or properly falling in love with people who are real or not real and then you know Julian's thought you know you were more interested in um, you know what's happening now and and the kind of changes we're seeing in the generational changes 
I mean, and at the heart of that debate, I was I was thinking think about you know Fiona's uh, thoughts about perhaps we're already living in a virtual world with you know banana chemicals and all the, all the rest. All of us every day present different personas to people. Like the sort of emails I write to different people are different, right? And so, but they're all kind of elements of me, but they're all slightly different. So how I would talk to you guys on a podcast is different from the emails I might write to a student or the emails I write, might write to the vice chancellor, right? And the sort of and and so on and so forth, right? They're all kind of parts of me. And similarly with with real currency, it's kind of a reflection of of the economy. And and but the thing is about some of these examples, such as the Heineken beer, the NFT, and the seeming people in the metaverse, right? Perhaps they're too detached, or we feel they're too detached from from any any grounding in in real life. Perhaps that perhaps that's the thinking that's going on. I don't know. That that's the thought that just occurred to me. I don't know if it might, that makes sense. Yeah, that seems right. That at least intuitively, there's a there's a sense in which at some point we want to say that an entity is is not real enough to be able to make claims on us, to be able to be part of our moral community or community of concern. But for what it's worth, I, I, I'm not sure that with the complexity of the world that we're building, uh-huh. uh, our traditional lines of demarcation are so simple to find. And actually, I find yeah. Fiona quite convincing with every question yeah, yeah. you ask me. I start going, well, maybe I don't know. I have no idea where the uh, line is. I don't know what a banana tastes like anymore. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. How, how would I be sure? You know, But that's quite worrying in some way. It feels like instead of climbing out of Plato's cave, we're just sort of digging deeper. That's sort of what I feel. That somehow, some way, we're building a world where... We're more and more invested in some kind of even less clear reality than, than what we had before instead of getting to something more stable or more beautiful. But perhaps this is the point. Maybe, maybe that's what we should embrace. We should embrace the fact that, that that was a false hope. I'm not sure. And I think we can find things that are very valuable in virtual worlds and people do that, ranging mm-hmm. from virtual worlds that are beautiful and aesthetically yeah. incredibly pleasing to, you know, which uh, skin my avatar has, which I've only got because I played an X number of hours, at X number of skill level in a certain game. And, and people do get concerned about their characters being killed in a game or mm. their uh, virtual items being stolen from them. And, and the courts, uh, courts in the Netherlands recently were considering a case of whether you can steal virtual items from a player in a game. It should revolve around, I think, our values and what we think is important. And I suppose we always have to come back to though how that ties into the real world. So, you know, with the with cryptocurrencies, we know that it takes so much computer power to generate and sustain these cryptocurrencies. Uh, there are whole sort of computer farms in deserts that are eating up electricity at a rate, you know, beyond comprehension just to produce and sustain cryptocurrencies. And you think, surely this can't be a good thing. Um, but then again, if if virtual worlds can find you love, then who's going to say no? <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering. I wonder if there's a sort of irony here. If you, I mean, there's been this sort of philosophical tradition of valuing the most the things which are detached from physical reality. So obviously we think about Plato's form. So you know, horses. Horses are all very well, but they're physical things that die and fall over. And you know, the, 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 the thing that has most value is the form of the horse. And you know, we won't go into details of what the form of the horse is, but it's some kind of ideal some kind of concept and it's non-physical and that's kind of what makes it great and so you know so for centuries a lots of people have been tempted by this kind of view yes 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 now we have the capacity to create these virtual worlds in which we've detached things from their physical basis 
It was going, oh my God, what a disaster. This is awful. Let's get back to those real <laughs> physical messy things. So I just wonder if there's a slight irony there. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to come back to just one thing Fiona had said uh, before. You mentioned Upload, the the TV show. Am I right in thinking this is the TV show where uh, someone dies, but there's a, a service whereby you can pay to upload their consciousness, and then bit by bit he has the experience of, I think, his surviving wife refuses to pay something, and then he's on the downgraded service with lower bit rate or something like that. <laughs> um, I, mean, I think that's the fundamental question with these things is who's building it and for what purpose? Because uh, even though, you know, the individual items or the world's built or the experiences we can have are valuable, uh, you know, like a Nozick's experience machine, they might be wonderful things to have. But the person controlling what's happening or the groups of people or the entities controlling what's happening are, at least in our current state of affairs, motivated by pecuniary gain to such an extent that it's difficult to trust in the, 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 the fundamental moral uh, justification for their decision making. Most of the time, they're just motivated by making a quick buck. And if they can make more faster, then they'll do that. We know that we are fragile, vulnerable animals. We're, we're very tempted by self-suggestion and, and lies, and we love them. So falling, you know, falling in love with an AI or with a robot, might, right now we find it a bit uncomfortable. But you know, under the right circumstances, where all of a sudden they look a lot like human beings, I suspect a lot of human beings might go, okay, why not? You know, And depending on who built the AI or the robot, that might be good or it might not be. Yeah, so obviously people have worries that the company formerly known as Facebook is building uh, these worlds because they want information about us, information that they mm -hmm. can sell. And one of the things that Heineken did when it was releasing this beer was it released it in decentral land, which uh, at least claims to be the first ever virtual world that is uh, owned by its users. So it's the users that get to vote on um, how the world should be, what changes can be implemented and so on. And so we find that uh, we get the same issues about in that, that arise in the real world about how ought to we organize ourselves? You know, do we want, uh, should we appoint governments who are voted in by people or are we happy with a benevolent dictatorship? All those questions arise about virtual worlds. So do, do we all want to vote on how this world is going to be? Are we going to have a democracy? Should we have a government? Should, or, you know, are we happy with um, Mark Zuckerberg as our benign dictator? Or maybe not so benign. <laughs> Listen, that's a great note to uh, end things on. Let's let's leave it there. Actually, so, so it started as a kind of jokey item, but as I thought, we've gone to some really big fundamental philosophical issues, not just beer. Thanks very much for, for bringing that to our attention, Fiona. Let's leave things there, and um, we'll see you all back for uh, the next part. And welcome back. This week, reports reached us of startling heat waves at both of the poles. I think the Arctic and the Antarctic are both 30, 40 degrees uh, higher than they should be at this time of year. This is the backdrop against many other stories. Um, Shell is reportedly considering a U-turn of its decision not to drill for oil in the Cambo field off Shetland. The UK cabinet is reportedly worried about extending onshore wind facilities. The German government will have to decide what it does about nuclear power. Uh, many, many things are going on around the world, uh, heightened by the, the situation in Ukraine and other geopolitical issues. Um, Josh, you raised the issue of climate change for us, and I suppose one can add in, as, as I've just done, energy usage as well. What do you think is particularly worrying at the moment? 
maybe the lack of attention that the climate itself is getting. So there was a, an IPCC report that came out not very long ago that was dedicated to the impacts of climate change. And this was kind of a bombshell in terms of what was in it. It reported that one in three people are already exposed to deadly heat stress and that this is projected to increase to 50 to 75% of the global population by the end of the century. That they expect 3.3 to 3.6 billion people to be living in conditions that are highly vulnerable to climate change right now and that the effects will be felt by 2050. Some losses are already irreversible, such as the first species uh, going extinct driven by climate change, and adverse impacts are cascading along coasts and cities and in mountainous regions. So these hazards are potentially going to trigger tipping points in sensitive ecosystems and in systems impacted by ice melt, permafrost thaw, and changing hydrology in polar regions. And this is just the beginning. The report goes on and on, Mm -hmm. and it, it reads like the end of the world. There's no other way to put it. And I think it was reported briefly in a, in a few uh, major media outlets, but because of what's going on in Ukraine and because of the pressure on uh, gas prices and petrol prices, it hasn't really been given uh, the, the kind of attention I think it deserves. And unfortunately, I think it, it has led to a strange kind of conversation whereby there is a sense in which we're coming to a moment of opportunity insofar as the, the, the rising cost of gas and petrol uh, is leading to a reevaluation of the centrality of those resources in our economies, and so the possibility of changing quickly. But at the same time, uh, there's a lot of pushback. There's a lot of pushback from the companies themselves that uh, sell these things, and there's a lot of pushback from their political allies. Um, so there's a very interesting question for me uh, that I think is coming out from multiple news stories about whether or not, uh, specifically in, in Europe, uh, we're going to see the kind of leadership that demonstrates that, in fact, uh, European democracies are, in fact, democracies interested in the well-being of their citizens, or whether, in the end, uh, there really is just all talk and actually the bite uh, for making real action on climate change is just not going to happen. So we're kind of at make or break. That's what I think. Thanks. Julian, Fiona, any any thoughts on that? Coming back to thinking about how we organize ourselves as a collective we. It seems like a, a really poor way in which we've organized ourselves is that our governments run on four to five year cycles. So if you're a government, you think, I've got to make stuff good in the next four to five years because I want to be reelected. And climate change requires thinking not on four to five year cycles, but on much longer term uh, cycles. <laughs> it requires much, much more longer term thinking. And so it's difficult to see the right pressure on politicians that there needs to be to address these problems because they, they, they're looking at you know, how do I make sure that people aren't freezing this winter? And how, you know, should we dig up a new oil field in Shetland so that um, we're not reliant on Putin's oil or gas? Or And they need to do that because, well, they do need to look after people in the short term, but also that's all their incentive is for the short term. And that's a, that's a real shame. And it's not obvious how we can fix that. So for what it's worth, that's the philosophical point of inflection for me. That's where I'm coming from. I've been reading Andreas Malm's book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And one of the questions at the center of this book is at what point uh, does it become rational for uh, citizens to engage in violent protest? Uh, mm-hmm. For what it's worth, his definition of violence uh, as, as, a, as a French citizen, so I'm a French citizen despite my accent. I'm also American, but I grew up in France. His definition of violent protest is breaking stuff. 
Now, for what it's worth growing up in France, no one thought that was violence. <laughs> so I find it interesting that in the English-speaking world, breaking things is seen as violence. But nevertheless, his advocacy is that you know we're reaching the point in which it's going to be uh, entirely morally justified to engage in sabotage and various forms of um, breaking of infrastructure uh, and, and other uh, commodity items that are connected to uh, massive carbon emissions because of uh, the inability of governments to respond to a long-term problem within the short-term cycles and potentially, so this is part of what's worrying, potentially the fact that they might in fact be bought. So certainly in the American context, there's very good reasons to think that many elected officials are uh, in the pocket of very big interests, particularly in the energy sector and big pharma, because we know that they make large donations and that uh, we can track the donations matching with the votes that are happening, uh, particularly in, in the Senate recently. And in Britain, it's a little harder to track, but you know there are similar kind of traces uh, in the political system across the board. So uh, when we then look at what we have built as our liberal democracies, as what we believe to be the, the best existing model of uh, government on earth, we have to wonder whether it has the resources to countenance a, an existential threat, not just to it as a system, but to humanity itself as a civilization. It, it seems to me to be such a huge problem that the funding of politics is by individuals and corporations of special interests, and it just gives them a power and a say in things which they ought not to have. And I know things are worse in the States than they are here, but but it, it you know, with reports of what some people are calling Russian oligarchs donating to the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party would say, well, actually, these are people with dual Russian UK citizenship and were perfectly legitimate for us to take uh, money from people who vote in the UK. Um, it, you know, that, that doesn't seem right. And even the fact, you know, even, even if we think of someone who, um, let's say, solely has UK citizenship, the fact that that person can donate large amounts of money and can withhold or not that money and can therefore influence government policy just seems ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. How on earth did we get into this position? It's, it's shocking. I share, look, although I share a lot of your, your, your shock and outrage at this, I, d- I think we're at risk of overplaying the role of funding in these decisions and, and, and underestimating the fact, actually, this is just a, a problem with what you are talking about earlier, you know, democracy itself. Because, okay, all this funding, absolutely. But I can think of two occasions in recent history where democratically elected governments in France and the UK decided to, to basically take an environmentally progressive measures on the raising of petrol costs. In both cases, what brought them down? They, first of all, they did it, so obviously being funded by these organisations didn't stop them doing it. But what brought them down? People on the streets, the gilets jaunes in, in France and you know truck drivers' protests in the UK. Uh, people say they want to save the planet, but when it hits their pockets, they generally don't do it. So I, I think that really, I mean, to me, I think Fiona sort of was initially focusing on thought the more fundamental problem, which is that of democracy itself and you know people who say okay this shows democracy is rubbish let's follow the china model that's not right i think as we have a complacency about democracy we kind of think we know what it means we think it's great well you know the criticisms of democracy you find in aristotle and plato a lot of them are very very good and sound 
criticisms. They, they, they're still true today. What happened was we thought we'd found our way around them, right? So we stopped, uh, we found a way of democracy not being a tyranny of the majority, for example. And, and by representative democracy means that you, 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 you gave power to more informed people to make decisions on the behalf of the majority rather than just going with mob rule. But I think that over a sort of recent decades, we've seen that actually a lot of these old worries have become more and more pertinent. And as uh, politics has become much more uh, concerned with you know campaigning and basically tools of PR etc cetera, etc cetera, and and following opinion polls and surveys it has become much more about tyranny of the majority and disregard for rule of law the idea we can turn things over you know that, that even even a president could be elected with, with the promise of, of putting his opponent on trial whatever it might be and I think we've got to sort of really think about how we can make our democracies fitter for purpose. And, and one of the things is getting that long-term focus in. And I just think, you know, all the time we're convinced that the, the, the f- democracy is fundamentally and centrally about elections on a four- or five-year cycle, and that's what defines it more than anything else. I think that's very, very narrow-minded. There are plenty of countries now we're seeing uh, sort of autocrat, illiberal democracies in which they have elections every four to five years. They're not what we thought democracy was. Yeah. I mean, just to build on that particular point, Julian, and then just think about the, the climate change issue. I mean, I think that the current situation, you talk about tyranny of the majority, uh, which is a kind of classic classic problem and issue in, in democracy. I think I think we're, we're at a point, certainly in our country, in, in the UK and in many other countries, where we've got the tyranny of the short term over the long term. Right, which picks up on Josh's thought and indeed uh, Fiona's thought about about the elections and the election cycle and politicians. And in fact, that I think that's that's the main tyranny, and particularly when you're coming to, to climate change. I mean, clearly there's some short term problems as well, right? But clearly it's a long term issue that will require a lot of fixing. And it's how we we break that cycle where politicians are constantly just thinking about the short term and chasing votes, and can then put things in place to help us in the long term, so that. It's not just about people having to make that stark choice in the next winter between eating and, and, and heating their homes, but actually people in five years' time aren't in that position, right? And people in 10 years' time aren't in that position. That, that's, that's what we need to do. That, for me, that's a, a kind of key lesson for, for what's happening at the moment. One of the things that's emerged um, in, in the discussion around climate justice is the fact that it seems as though certain interests, uh, certainly from the right of the political spectrum in America and, and in Britain as well, rejects the idea that uh, aiming for a rapid reduction in carbon is something that could be done whilst respecting uh, the, the concerns of those who have less wealth of the poor, basically, who need to get differential levels of support to be able to help and do their part in reducing carbon emissions. And I think what we're in danger of when we're listening to those voices is forgetting that some problems just are collective problems. They, some problems cannot be solved without having a large coordinating entity, such as the state or, in fact, supranational entities, to enable a complex change whereby we've thought very carefully about the impacts that these changes are going to have on the lives of people who live in different material circumstances. And that, in some way, is at least partially technocratic because we have to think about the level of expertise we need to understand the specific context in which people live to come up with meaningful answers. But at the same time, it does still require meaningful democratic engagement because actually, without knowing what people feel on the ground, uh, where the shoe pinches, to to use the Deweyan phrase, uh, then 
we, we just can't get it right. And so what I think I'm, I'm interested in here, and it, is, it does bring a bit of conversation full circle, uh, is about this, this civic dimension that it seems as though we've been told for quite a while that, in a way, problems are to be solved on an individualistic basis by making good consumer decisions and by uh, maybe occasionally protesting or signing a petition, but not much else is required of us. And I think what we're really uh, having to contend with is the fact that all of these problems now are so central and fundamentally undermine the question of what it is to be a community of some kind requires us to get into the ballpark of defending the, the very idea of a community. And that's a collective problem that we got to put at the center of our lives, that it's very demanding and it's very hard and it's very uncertain whether or not we're going to achieve it. I, I really agree with you, Josh. And I think COVID, the COVID crisis was a moment where we saw that we needed experts, we needed governments to organize people and services and so on in a way that I think people, some people had failed or had stopped seeing. And it seemed like that was a moment where we saw that really we need to act collectively to deal with some problems. And there was this huge response to COVID. And I think people were quite surprised to see that big response and how it happened. But that's the kind of thing that we need in response to climate change. We need to say this is an emergency. This is a huge problem and we have to turn it around. But that in the way that you can't you can't leave people to suffer alone in that, right? You, the One of the nice things about COVID was you didn't leave homeless people on the streets. People came up with a solution for that. So what we need is a solution for poor people who cannot afford to uh, heat their homes or are choosing between heating their homes and eating. We can't leave people in that position. And therefore, we do need something quite radical that allows us to move away from consumption of fossil fuels, basically, but in a way that doesn't leave people hungry or cold. Oddly enough, the solutions are not that difficult to find. So that's another thing that's quite shocking. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about heat pumps. So heat pumps are quite expensive at the moment of purchase, but in effect, they they pay for themselves over time. And in fact, if there were uh, community uh, funds as well as efforts to enable uh, communities to use space around them to build community heat pumps, then that could be even cheaper and even uh, more rewarding for that community to invest in. And it, it could be done by local councils if they had the money or the state itself. And so in a sense, you know, we, we know that the money can be spent to um, reduce carbon emissions pretty rapidly, at least in terms of the, the private. And we just haven't had the political will to do it yet. I looked up the cost of installing a heat pump prior to uh, coming on this podcast out of interest. I think it costs about £11,000 to install it and another two pounds to £3,000 to get the right sort of internal system to distribute the heat in your house. So, you know, you're thinking £14,000, you know, 14, £15,000 to do that. A lot of people would just look at you and grin and go, yeah, um, well, what dream world are we talking individuals about? Individuals to carry that. That, that costs. Um, but we can expect larger entities like the state to carry that as debt. Uh, so, I mean, I'm not an economist either, but, you know, one of the things that's worth saying is that right now governments can still borrow at around 2% interest rate and inflation is going to probably top 8%, 7 or 8% this year. So borrowing is a net gain uh, if we're going to spend the money uh, it, wisely and intelligently. And so I think we have to see that the responsibility really is with government 
to solve these big problems and to and to make them attractive. So Julian was worried about the fact that it, you know, when there were attempts to impose uh, taxes, hi, you know, hikes in the taxes on fuel, there were protests and, and big ones, particularly in France with the Gilets Jaunes. That is true, but it's also true that those same governments hadn't taken any steps to genuinely improve the lives of the people who needed to make different choices and different actions materially. They hadn't actually stepped in to help them. They just punished. And I think that's a mistake. We have to invest in, in the common good. Otherwise, we forget that it even exists. I mean, aren't we just up against a huge psychological barrier, which is that, you know, people are motivated to do things on the basis of uh, salience, you know, how, how pressing and immediate something is. And the problem with the uh, environmental issues is that it engages our minds on, on the purely uh, reflective level. So there's this distinction made, uh, I think, Dan Sperber makes it, the psychologist, between intuitive and reflective beliefs. And, and what he means is those beliefs, intuitive meaning, you know, not that we get them through some process of intuition, but they become intuitive, they become felt. You really feel them, right, in, in your gut. Uh, and, and so you, you have intuitive beliefs about things that are really salient, emotionally strong and so forth. And purely reflective beliefs are things that you find yourself assenting to when you think them through. But it doesn't sort of make that breakthrough to how you feel. And I think that it seems to me the vast majority of us, when we're thinking about the environment, we we all know at that reflective level, it's awful, it's terrible, something's got to be done. But it's not impinging on, upon our feelings and motivations on a, on a daily level. And that's why it's so hard to to persuade people to, to do the actions that are necessary. And that seems to me like a, just a huge, huge problem. Um, I don't, you know, the psychologists have explained that distinction very, very well. But if they're to ask us how how are we to sort of make that breakthrough, it's it's really tough. It's really tough, isn't it? I'd love and to hear a good suggestion. I think that when you look at some instances where it looks like you've had some breakthrough there, so some of the David Attenborough programs that have been on mm. television recently showing, you know, turtles, you know, swimming through seas of plastic bags and so on. I think I think David Attenborough has, has really been instrumental in getting people to feel that um, viscerally and for those kinds of beliefs to become instinctual. And I think we, we need more of that. And, you know, that's also something that could be government funded. I mean, I know the BBC is government funded, um, but, you know, you could, you know, raising awareness is something that the government can also do because if in our reflective moments we see that actually this is what's required, then we can work on making those beliefs and those desires to do something about it more instinctual. I think you're right, but it's very hard because, I mean, those things, the effects of those documentaries seems to fade over time quite quickly. And there's also a sensitization effect. So, for example, you know, the, the brilliant idea of putting pictures of horrible diseased lungs on cigarette packets and so forth to put people off. Well, okay, but, I mean, I think after a while, smokers just don't even see them anymore. You know, they just keep keep puffing away. It just doesn't cut through. Right, so but we have, it, we have marketing companies who are specialists yes. at selling <laughs> Heineken beer and persuading us that we need virtual yeah. beer in our lives you know these these people understand human psychology very well and they yeah. know what works and if again if we wanted to fund people to you know keep our attention to make to bring things to, into our, our sort of daily lives about these issues then we could do that if we wanted okay brilliant. So here's, a, here's a proposal that I think is actually the other reasons that's subject for another day is why advertising is generally actually quite evil as an industry and is, 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 is really quite pernicious. So what we need to do is to nationalise the advertising industry and get them all working <laughs> on, on climate 
communications. There you go. I'll second that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, perhaps we'll get the three of you back on in another episode to talk about that, and I'll get someone from the from the National Committee of Advertisers to give them a right of reply or something. <laughs> um, listen, thank you. I think we better leave things there. That was a really interesting discussion. Thank, thanks, all three of you. And, and in fact, we should thank uh, Julian, Fiona, and Josh for giving up their time and, and appearing on this week's episode. And thank you uh, for listening as well. And all being well, we'll be back next week uh, for another episode of Philosophy Takes on the News. Mm-hmm.